As you're seated, we come again to consider James chapter 3 and verse 17, particularly looking at one such property of biblical wisdom to help focus our thoughts in context here from James chapter 3 and verse 13 through 17. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It is that second part of wisdom in verse 17 that we now attend upon, but the wisdom that is from above is peaceable. It's first pure, then peaceable. If you wish to see how rare biblical wisdom is today, you need only look at these four words. First, pure, then peaceable. We discussed and considered purity, that it's not only that idea of it being unmixed, but it has a special reference to such moral purity as elsewhere is called holiness. And so, holiness. And so we see elsewhere this word being translated chaste, as in chaste conversation or conduct, pure, holy conduct. And here now, you'll notice it proceeds from purity to peaceable. Now, the sequence is not one of leaving something behind and moving on to something else. It's not like, for instance, if you are considering an infant who is first a little child and then grows up and then becomes an adult. They're no longer a little child. That's not what wisdom is here. It's not that it's first pure, and then it transforms into peaceable, and then it moves from there into the other things. But rather, the statement of it being first is speaking of something of its preeminent property. It is of whatever else it is, it will always be pure, always be holy. So biblical wisdom, wisdom that is given from above, which descends from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of variance, who is the giver of every good gift, gives wisdom that is first and foremost and always holy. But the thing that perhaps strikes us is that this is joined with all that follows, which in sequence, the next word is peaceable. This word peaceable can be translated peaceful. It has to do with promoting peace and harmony and unity. And so it has an approach seeking to establish that which is known by the word peace. And so when we speak of biblical wisdom being peaceable, when the Scripture set this before us, it's speaking of, if we can think of it this way, of what wisdom pursues of the approach and posture of wisdom. It is, of course, first and foremost, holy, but in its holy conduct, it is ever 
peaceable. It's ever promoting what is good and right, yes, holy and true, yes. But likewise, what would remove strife, what would remove friction, what would remove uh, any sort of such things. We read earlier in Genesis 13, you see a beautiful picture of that in Abram. Strife arises between Abram and Lot and his shepherds and their Lot's shepherds. And so Abram, the superior in the relationship, the privileged one above all in the relationship, comes in humility and meekness. And you'll notice in James these related ideas when James has said, if there's a wise man among you, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. That's what you see in Abram. He pursues Lot. He doesn't sit back and say, well, he's going to come to me. We're going to settle this. Nor does he come with his fists clenched and saying, you're going to fix this. You're going to go wherever I tell you to go. He comes with meekness. And he's promoting the reestablishing of peace. And so it is with wisdom. Biblical wisdom is that which seeks and pursues peace. Now, this is, of course, related to many passages that highlight the priority of peace. You think of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit consists in what? Well, love and joy and, among other such things, peace. In other words, where the Spirit is at work in the life of an individual, there will be the growth and development among other things, of peace. That this person will be increasingly pursuing peace. It's interesting to think of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many ways He's described, but you'll remember in the book of Isaiah that He has as His title, among others, that He is called the Prince of Peace. And you'll notice as well in Isaiah that His kingdom is described in peaceful terms. And so in different ways, images are used of the child sitting by and playing by the hole of the adder, that is the venomous serpent, the lion lying down with the lamb. These aren't things that we look forward to in some uh, premillennial age where literal fulfillment of a lion sitting down with the lamb will come to pass. It's rather indicative of the effect of Christ's kingdom. Where Christ reigns, peace is evident. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, Paul gives a very well uh, articulated exhortation. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And in that, of course, he's acknowledging that in spite of the peaceful way that wisdom would carry itself, there will be opposition. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount uh, pronounces a blessing upon peacemakers. And yet he also says, blessed, immediately following that, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And so in spite of the fact that they, may are, they are known as peacemakers, there will still be wicked men who would oppose. And yet Paul, noting the same, experiencing the same as well, he says none of that's to excuse our pursuit as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. We're grateful that men are rediscovering the necessity of holiness and much appeal is made to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14, but oftentimes it's quoted without what immediately precedes, follow 
peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And so we're thankful that men are seeing that holiness is necessary as an evidence of grace. Without holiness, there's no grace. Without holiness, whatever one professes is in vain. And yet, linked to that is following peace with all men. And again, you can see the intimate connection. It's stated by order of priority in James. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. But it's stated in its intimate relationship still in Hebrews, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. And so in no way does the Bible allow us to divorce the two, and in no way does it permit us to say, well, I have peace, so I'm okay, but I don't care about holiness. Nor does it allow us to say, well, I'm concerned about holiness, I don't care about peace. What we see rather is this joining together of these, as well as the various properties that follow after. But we focus this evening upon this property of biblical wisdom, namely, that it is peaceable. So consider then three things. Firstly, what is meant by peaceable. Secondly, why it is that wisdom is peaceable. And thirdly, how wisdom displays such peaceableness. Firstly then, what is meant by this word peaceable? Well, we'll note, as already mentioned, first it is to be seen as an inherent property of wisdom. What we mean by this is it is part of true biblical wisdom. It's not an enhancement. It's not an addendum. It's not an appendix. It's not an optional matter. Where there is biblical wisdom, it will necessarily display as well this peaceable characteristic. And so when we speak of, for instance, a human, there is among those things that are included in that description, some things which are essential. And whatever else is essential, there is a body and a soul that is essential to being human. Now these can be separated at death, and yet they won't remain in that separate state. They'll be brought back together. And so if you could, for instance, if you could, for instance, merely conceive of Adam before the spirit of life was blown into him by the Lord, you would have seen in whatever fashion, this fashioned thing, but you wouldn't have had yet a human because it was not until the Lord did plant the soul in him that he became what is essentially known as a human. Well, when we think about wisdom, we are wrong to think of wisdom if we do not have in our minds as an essential component the idea of peaceable, that where biblical wisdom is present, there will be this aspect as well. Now, particularly what is meant by peaceable is what's been noted. It is that which seeks peace. It is pursuing harmony with others. Now, we don't need to labor this point because of James already making it quite plainly, but to remind ourselves that this is not peace at any cost. This is not peace at any expense. 
It is peace which never sacrifices purity. Purity is preeminent. And so this is why James makes the point when he says the wisdom that is from above is first pure. But notice it's linked necessarily to it being peaceable. And so what we can say is where there is pure wisdom, there is a necessary link of it being seeking harmony with others. We read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. That's a beautiful expression of what the notion of peaceable means, is that they're not just passive, not stirring up strife, but they're actually active, seeking to quell the strife. So you can see it again in Abram. Abram didn't just get word of the strife and say, well, let's just ignore it and maybe it'll pass. He actually goes to establish peace. Lot, listen, there's strife between us. There's strife between our shepherds. Let it not be so. And he puts before Lot a way that would establish peace. He's making peace. This is what is meant by peaceable. It's avoiding contention as much as possible, as Paul says, but it's also not only avoiding it, it's actually actively seeking to subdue it. Now, brethren, you have a picture of it, of course, in the glorious and gracious announcement that comes from heaven. When Christ is born, you have this angelic pronouncement declaring when there the shepherds see the angels, there's glory to God in the highest and peace, goodwill toward men. It's actually God's motion toward this world. He's coming with a Savior. He's not the one who sits back and says, well, I'm holy, you're going to deal with it. He in His holiness is the one who pursues peace through the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think for a moment, you see it in Isaiah. Isaiah sees, oh, what an overwhelming thought, seeing the holiness of God. And he's consumed with his thought of sin. And he cries out, woe is me, I'm undone. And yet who is it? that pursues peace with Isaiah. It's not Isaiah that seeks peace with God. It's God who pursues it with Isaiah. And the same is true of us individually. God is the one who took the initial initial pursuit of establishing peace. He didn't wait and say, well, I'm going to publish my law, and then they're going to find out about their sin, and I'm going to hang back, and then I'm going to wait for them to get concerned, and then they'll start making their approach to me. Brethren, in our sin, isn't that what we often do when contention arises? We have all of our self-vindication and justifying, and we say, well, they're the one who screwed up. They're the one who messed it up. They're the one who's the problem. I'll wait for them to come to me. But what a glorious picture of peace-seeking and a peaceable approach do we see in God who pursues after us in terms of grace and mercy and peace to bring us into harmony with Himself. Likewise is the wisdom that He gives peaceable. Well, secondly, why is wisdom peaceable? Well, as we've just stated, it's because 
of its intimate connection to the only wise God. God is peaceable. This is not to say he's unjust. It's not to say that he's not just. It's not to say that he is unholy or that he's not holy. It is to say that though holy, while holy, and even because holy, he is graciously one who pursues peace. And notice the wisdom is from above. And so it's wisdom that comes from God. The wisdom that is of the earth, that inhabits upon the earth, that is ruled by selfish, sensual desires, that is like unto devils, may indeed put on a show of being pure, but it is unwilling to be low before others and seek peace. Or it may be that which seeks a form of peace, but will not maintain purity. Brethren, here is a fundamental point about true biblical wisdom. It is, as we see with each additional property so put before us, it is a supernatural grace. It is nothing that you or I can of our own strength cultivate. That's not to say there aren't means God has provided. It's simply to say this. It is unnatural to fallen man. There are shadow forms of wisdom that the world can in some way put forth. There is some degree of even an earthly way of patience and kindness and other such things. But to maintain purity and a peaceable approach demands the divine and omnipotent grace of God to provide us. And when it is that God gives wisdom, He never divides these things one from the other. Now, we ought to acknowledge that each of us is a work in progress, right? God is at work sanctifying us. And you can remember John and James, the sons of thunder. You can remember as well David's mighty men as they asked David, shall we go and take off his head? And others like that who came, for instance, Joshua even, when he came to Moses and said, there are these men prophesying in the camp, forbid them and so on. And Moses says, would that all God's people prophesied. You see, there is something in us in our immaturity that will often first get a glimpse of purity and holiness, and it'll be a little bit of time before we see how to maintain that in a spirit that's peaceable to one another. So most of us can look back and we can sort of articulate those little moments where we came on with greater understanding of doctrine. And we then saw the uh, disagreement of many others. And we can also look at that time and see we were little and peaceable approaches, and so we were iron-fisted, heavy-handed. Our tones, our words were whatever our self-vindication was. You know how it convicts us to think back to those days Whatever our tones or or thoughts were, our tones displayed something of a meager aspect of a peaceable approach. But where God begins a good work, He continues it and He completes it unto the end. And so we can look back and say, oh, thanks be unto God that He's given me not a compromising of holiness, 
not a compromising of doctrine, but rather maintaining of that and wisdom that is showing itself through a peaceable approach. Why is that? Because the wisdom he gives his children is a divine gift. He packs all of this in, and he's the one who cultivates it over time. Moreover, why is such wisdom peaceable? Well, it's also because of the peace that's been shown to us. We can borrow the idea of what John says in his epistle when he says, we love him because he first loved us. And we can say in another sense, we seek peace because he sought peace with us. And this is the reasoning that Christ provides when he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your uh, neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. But I say unto you, bless them who curse you. And he says, notice that you may show yourself to be children of your Father in heaven. There's a likeness, a family likeness in that peaceable approach that when it is, oh, what an expression he employs when he says, resist not evil. When hardship comes, don't dig your heels in and say, well, you've wronged me, I'm going to wrong you back. He says, rather be one, in essence, who is like your father, who is peaceable toward those who have wronged him. Well, there's much more that can be said. We can say one more thing about why wisdom is peaceable, because wisdom, in correcting our understanding, has reoriented our purpose. Our purpose is not our vindication, is not our uh, advance, Our purpose is the promotion of God's kingdom. And so, instead of seeking strife, we're seeking to be instruments of the advance of that kingdom of peace and righteousness and so on. Well, thirdly, how then is wisdom peaceable? In what way does it show itself peaceable? Well, one thing, as just indicated, is that wisdom maintains its primary focus. Wisdom is fixed upon the glory of God. And brethren, if we can start there, we necessarily say the second thing to God's glory then, the consequent of God's glory, is our humility. When we have a true sense that God is glorious, the first thing that will show itself is not our articulation that God is glorious, is not our assertion that God is glorious, but rather our personal humbling of ourselves that we are brought to be meek and lowly. When it is that such wisdom is given to us to see things the way they are, to see that it is God who is glorious, God who is worthy, God who is honorable, God who is true, the first impact of that is a reflect, a reflection upon ourselves to say, I am far different. And it humbles us, which then plants within us and transforms us to be those who would show our wisdom out of a good conversation, His works with meekness of wisdom. It changes us. It's not unlike when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. 
At that point, what happened? Well, he's laboring in prayer, and he's holding on, saying, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And then he's touched in his hip, and from thenceforward he walks with a limp. He's brought to some extent to be a bit lowlier. And so it is with us. The more that we take in of God by grace, the more we're enlightened by His Word as the Spirit gives us these things, the more we commune with Him and we come to see something of the glorious truth of God and His gracious blessing of us. Far from it puffing us up, it actually humbles us that we then pursue purity, holiness in a peaceable way. God's glory is our first and foremost lesson. And our desire is to see His kingdom advance. Not ours. And it's not as if, well, we've seen this perhaps, if we've seen pictures of it, you've seen at the Queen's funeral all these medals and so on that are worn and they all signify something. We don't speak against that in this world, but we know of those who would do things just so they get a new star attached to their chest and a new paper that can hang on the wall and a new little insignia that is provided to them as some testimony of their accomplishments. But God's children have no such desire. God's children aren't saying, well, I want to see someone brought along so that they think well of me. God's children have a singular desire to promote the glory of God, which necessarily humbles us. It causes us to manage our approach, manage our tones, manage our own humbling of ourselves. Why? Because when it's divinely given wisdom, it is a divinely focused wisdom. It is fixed and focused upon God. But secondly, it's peaceable, it displays it because it maintains its secondary focus. What is the secondary focus? Well, it's expressed, of course, in the first two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second, like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Biblical wisdom is ever fixed upon those things. Loving God. Loving our neighbor. And so, We know what it's like to be in error, and we know the benefit of a loving and wise person to come and not call us to the carpet, as is expressed in our own day, not to publicly shame us, unless there be public sin that needs to be addressed. And yet even then, it's done so in a spirit and tone of love to our souls. We know those needs. And so as we would have others do unto us, we do unto them. And so it's causing us to remember our words, our actions, our tones, our manner, everything, the scene in which we're addressing things, the way, the timing, all of it is seeking the actual good of the other and in no way is seeking our own because we're first fixed upon God's glory, but secondly fixed upon the good of others. What this leads us to do, of course, is 
to remove stumbling blocks. There's but one stumbling block that is ever to exist and from which the Christian ought never to swerve or seek to remove, and that is Christ crucified. If men say, well, I'm offended that you think that I need to be saved by the crucified Christ Jesus, we say, I'm terribly unashamed to say unto you, that's the truth. But there are other things that come up and we're navigating them, not to compromise what's pure, but we're thinking about rather how it is we approach them, the timing, the manner, the tone, the words, and whether it is that it needs to be addressed even. Because wisdom, of course, is that which is able to know when it's time to speak and when it's time to overlook. And so we've mentioned this in uh, recent times. Think of Noah in his drunken sin. And one son comes, sees, and further aggravates the shame of Noah. But the other two walk backwards and cover Noah. And they cover his shame. That's wise and peaceable love. They don't come to him and say, look what an absolute fool you've made of yourself. Could they have done it? Perhaps. But there was wisdom that brought them low to cover his sin. And brethren, as we're told in the Scriptures, it's charity which covers a multitude of sins. This is something that is difficult for us because we can sense in ourselves the tension, which in God's Word is no tension. The tension in our mind is, how is it that we can be zealous for purity and at the same time manifest that in a peaceable temper? And the answer is, of course, it's as we grow in wisdom. It's as God gives to us further grace. It's sort of this way when children are learning new things and they're, they're not able to understand more advanced learning. It's not that there's a tension in the actual learning. It's that they haven't yet matured to be able to see how it connects. And the same is true of us spiritually. That there is no tension between purity and peaceableness. But these belong together. And where we feel a tension is actually a testimony that we have need to grow in wisdom. And so if we're sitting here tonight and we're saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, which is perhaps all of our temptation, one degree or another, what we're really bumping into is the meager allotment of wisdom to ourselves. We are seeing the need we have to grow in wisdom. That we would then, by God's grace, be those who are able with uncompromising commitment hold to what is pure, and yet with uncompromising commitment to be willing to cover a multitude of sins. How will we know when we're to expose sin and when we're to cover sin? Brethren, that's the very thing we're talking about. We'll know it as we grow in wisdom. There's not an answer that comes in, is it this category, that category? There's so many countless circumstances that are before us. We need wisdom. And you say, well, I want the book. Well, there are many books that can help us, not least of which, of course, is the Bible. But let's remember what the Bible has told us. If any of you lack wisdom, 
Let him ask of God. You see, we often want to, in some sense, find the shortcut to maturity. When God is causing us to bump into things, and what he's actually calling us unto is the humbling of ourselves and the exercising of our souls to cry out to God saying, I need wisdom. If I'm to speak in this way, it surely won't be with the property of peaceableness. Or, if I ignore that thing, it surely won't be then purity. Lord, how am I to maintain these things? Well, the first thing that we do is we acknowledge our own lack of wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We garner to ourselves the encouragement because we're reminded that God gives liberally and upbraideth not. Someone comes to one of us and says, I'm thirsty. Um, I've been working all day. Do you have just a little cup of water? And we're happy to be liberal and say, have this. There's a bucket of water. Have a hose. There's a hose outside. Turn it on. Take it all in. We're being full and liberal to their need. Well, God is far more liberal to us in our need. If we're feeling the lack of our wisdom, the littleness of our wisdom, what it is is a divine call in His providence to draw near to God and say, Lord, whatever I thought I had and whatever I do have, I pray that You would multiply wisdom unto me. Well, let's close with just a few points of application. The first, of course, is to see as noted, how great our need is for this gift. To be pure, perhaps we can get our minds around that. We study God's law, we search the Scriptures, we meditate upon God who is holy, and we start to get, as it were, a thought, okay, to be pure is to abstain from sin, to be pure is to be pursuing of righteousness, to be pure is not just outward but inward, and we can start to get our minds around that. And then we can likewise get our minds around being peaceable and being those who seek peace and ensue it. But to be pure and peaceable at one and the same time is something that we see is well beyond our reach, naturally speaking. And so what we need to come to terms with is that this is not one person's need. This is every Christian's need. Because remember, brethren, it says that this wisdom is from above. It's not something that you and I can find in this world. It's not something that you and I can find by looking deep within. It's not something that you and I can find by emptying our minds and chanting certain nonsense syllables and sounds and going out onto a mountaintop and taking it. It doesn't come by freeing your schedule. It doesn't come by simplifying your life. It comes rather by the gift of God, by divine grace. And so we have to cultivate a sense of our need for nothing less than divine grace supplying this which we lack. That we would be those who are wise and pure and peaceable as well as the host of others that follow after. But brethren, as we come to sense our need, this is often our difficulty. It's with anything. When we see a little glimpse of our need, a natural reaction within us typically takes place 
of trying to protect it and trying to minimize it and trying to say, well, it's not that bad. You know, that person sort of exaggerated the need. And, well, I see it, but, you know, the need is there really because of person X or person Y or the times that I'm living in or the past or the history or whatever else, you know. Brethren, what we have to do is we have to own the need that really is ours. And the only way that we can do it is by trusting the one from whom we seek the provision for our need. You would hesitate to trust one who would torture you. You pretend as if you're healthy and strong and you've got no pain. You're not going to flinch and all these kinds of things. Some of the most moving stories are of those who have been whipped by torturous men and they would not so much as make a sound because they would not want to let on to their torturer that such pain was being experienced. But how different it is when we have a pain and we trust the person to whom we speak and the person has skill to help us with our pain. And so it is with God. God is not the one with a whip in hand and says, do you lack wisdom? If you lack wisdom, I'm coming at you. He's rather the one who has a gracious supply and says, if you lack wisdom, ask of me, and I give liberally, and I don't reproach you for it. There's the opening several chapters of Proverbs which has this as a recurring emphasis. Wisdom is crying out, saying, if you're a simple one, if you're a foolish one, come and I will give you wisdom. And what a beautiful portrait that is of our God in heaven who is, as it were, saying unto us, oh, look how beyond yourself such wisdom is. And yet look of how much in my control it is to give. And so as we identify our need, we also have to see clearly the Lord's willingness to provide to us that which we lack. So maybe it's that we are on the peaceable side as we speak and we're unwilling to maintain purity. We have to come to terms with that and say that's a wrong order, number one, and it's to miss out on an essential ingredient or property of wisdom. Lord, I see that my attempts to be peaceable are actually compromises of purity. Forgive me for this. And bestow upon me such wisdom that wouldn't relinquish a sincere effort to be peaceable, but would do so without compromising the truth of your word. Or maybe we're on this other side and we say, well, I'm for purity and they're all sinners. And so all they're going to hear from me is the continued condemnation and barking attitude and so on. Well, brethren, we have to be sure that condemning sin is not unpeaceable. But there is a way of condemning sin that is nonetheless clear in its peaceable approach. But here's the point. Wherever we might struggle, whether it is or others that follow, we gather it up unto God and we say, Oh God, You are a willing and gracious Father in Heaven who has full store of what I lack. And so we confess our lack to Him. We acknowledge it. And in our acknowledging of it, We have the confidence that as we ask it of Him, He provides it to us. Well, what need do you have of such wisdom? Imagine that you, like I, can look to your past 
as a clear enough testimony of the same. But you can also look at your current circumstances. There is a profane world surrounding you. And you can't breathe without breathing in some aspect of the profanity of this world. The world is calling for compromise, and we ourselves have been guilty of it on a number of occasions, doubtlessly. And we see this around us, and what we see is, Lord, if I'm to take a step that's right, I need your supply of wisdom. We can see others who are striving, as it were, in their mind to be pure, and yet all about them are the slain uh, bystanders by their swords and darts of words that they would say were seeking purity, but really were simply harming others. We see these things in our world today. And when we see it, we see our need for such wisdom from God. Brethren, the Lord is one who instructs us as he does here, but as he does so, perhaps he corrects us. Perhaps it is that we look at this and say, you know what, if I'm honest, there is a degree of bitter envying and strife in my heart, and so where I have put myself forth as a wise person, I need to acknowledge that it's not the case. Well, the Lord is good to show that to us. But maybe it is that we look at this and we say, Praise be unto God that where I once didn't care about purity and just wanted to be socially friendly, now he's given me a concern for purity. Well, how did that come to pass? That didn't come of natural means. That came of God's gracious means, God's at work. Or maybe it was we look back and say, well, I was so zealous for uh, the cause of God that I was as the sons of thunder saying, Things like, would you call down lightning and consume these people even now? But God be praised that whereas there's not been a compromise of the purity of God's law and the purity of His purpose, that there's been a tempering of my approach and a patience and kindness and a genuine seeking of peace with others. Brethren, here's the point. If you're a Christian for any length of time, you can look and discern and see the Lord has been at work in you cultivating these aspects. Now, it may not be as with any of us that we say we have it to the degree and measure that we long to have it. But God be praised that there is any degree of such wisdom that is pure and peaceable. Because if there is, that is evidence of none less than God at work in you, which then should fuel your thanksgiving and your prayer for Him to continue this work. That He should not only receive thanks from us that there is some growth, because if there is some growth, it's gracious growth, but that he should also receive further petitions. Lord, this thing that you're doing, continue it, that I would not compromise the holy standards of your word, and that I likewise would be those who would use your word to establish and seek peace with others. Well, brethren, you'll notice as you look ahead that there are other Not quite synonyms, but related ideas that it is gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And yet notice again, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Brethren, let us seek from the Prince of Peace, who is 
the all-wise Son of God, such wisdom as would make us in His arrangement, in His dominion, agents of peace by His grace. That in the end, the kingdom of righteousness would reign to the glory of our God for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?